I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Hey, Carla. So ethereal. <laughs> doing radio from home, like everybody's doing radio from home. Yeah, I mean, everyone's podcasting. You know? I mean, even radio people like me are becoming glorified podcasters now. Yeah, exactly. So, so this is an ethereal magical mystery tour with my old co-host, Carla Haas Moskowitz. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't been on the radio okay. in a long time, have you? No. But you're a natural. I've not been on the radio in a long time. You're a natural. You know, I, I think I am. I love radio, and I have this, you know, as my son said, you know, chop wood, carry water. He understands what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I've just developed this routine. I kind of do this anyway, so it doesn't feel dramatically different than pre-COVID. <laughs> but COVID quarantine life brings it even more out. I think it magnifies it if you're like that anyway. It's like I get up, do my sunrise yoga online, I feed the. I have. I have fish now. I feed my fish. My two tanks of betta fish. Make the dog the food. You know. Turn on the Christmas lights that I have all over the house because I don't like overhead lighting. It's really good. It's like eat one hard-boiled egg. <laughs> like, and then I do this every day, and I'm perfectly content with this life, as content as I can be, and with sort of my angst-ridden personality. And then when I go out, because I need to buy something, food, hmm. it causes so much anxiety, Tony. It's like I'm agoraphobic. I'm becoming agoraphobic. I don't know. I worry about what's happening to our world because I don't think I'm unusual. I think a, a number of people are starting to experience, you know, just more challenges to maintain peaceful inner self. Well, specifically, what, what are you referring to? What are you experiencing? Well, I'm just, I'm cognizant of it. I have not figured it all out. And because I live alone, um, except with the dogs, I don't really talk to too many people. And the more I've gotten into my aging process and quarantine in life, I I talk to fewer and fewer people. So this is just raw from like even yesterday. I spent the whole day, I ran lots of errands. I was with my family, my daughter, and three of my grandchildren. And I had a number of things to do, and we did fun things, you know. And the whole time there was just this low-level anxiety, which I recognize as PTSD because I have PTSD. So 
I know what it is, and I accept it, and I'm not panicking over it. I'm not trying to diagnose it or fight it. I just, I'm aware of it. I notice it. And, you know, I'm very conscious that my routines are to keep myself at peace, you know, and therefore the world, which is my theory. And so I just notice it. And then I, because when I try to figure out, well, what's wrong? Like, what is happening? Well, what's wrong? It's like, well, why are you feeling anxious? Well, duh. I mean, part of it is a big duh, because the whole, it's like, as I've mentioned, like, to some people, like, if people are not anxious right now, then they're, I think they're sociopaths. Because if you really look at what's happening in the world, it's, it's pretty significant. Like, it's just scary. So you're talking about more, yeah, than, I mean, more than just the virus, the pandemic. Well, the pandemic is a piece of it, but the pandemic itself is pretty significant. And it's not just because I'm in Florida. You know, I mean, the United States is oblivious. We have a leader that we deserve and we elected who is very clear about he's fine with a percentage of the population dying. I mean, he really doesn't care. And, in fact, that would be optimal. He's opening schools, which any normal person would know is the last thing that you do is open the schools. Like, you don't even talk about opening the schools. But we're now talking about it. We're talking about that, oh, yeah, we'll just put in, you know, more places to wash your hands. Like anybody who's taught school for five seconds or stood in a school building for more than a minute knows that that's lunacy. Like you don't, what a teacher's going to say, okay, go wash your hands, put your mask back on. Like school already was ridiculous. Like school already was ridiculous. And we normalized it. And that's fine, you know. But now this layer, and that's where we're going, so that's just one piece of a much more complicated process of how we protect our healthcare workers, our delivery, like the whole, the layers and layers of the unveiling of every part of our society that is deeply flawed and toxic and in need of repair, along with all the light and potential and possibility. I mean, I understand that it's all of that. You know. So I'm walking around stores with people with masks on, like, I'm assuming most people in the world right now. And it's just freaking, it's like a nightmare. I mean, it's like something you would dream at night and then wake up and go, oh, God, we were all walking around grocery stores in masks. But it's not a nightmare. <laughs> it's, like, it's real life. It's a real life sci-fi, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's real life sci-fi. And every day is. And we're on, we're on Zoom meetings and we... You know, you look around and everybody is talking to 70 people on a screen, and I don't know. I just think that it's it's what it is, but it's, you know, so you can say, well, you know, there's lots of narratives you can create about whatever, but the bottom line is is that it's scary. It's just because it's, you know, it's just it has it's fear-provoking, which in itself is, again, it's not, it's an emotion, and it's okay to be afraid, but you know, it's, just, it's just lots of unknowns, which, again, it depends on your philosophy. There's lots of unknowns, but there's always unknowns anyway. Mm-hmm. It's not like before we always knew what was going to happen. It's like, oh, I always knew it was going to happen before, and now all of a sudden there's, an un- there's unknowns. Well, in the past, it was, well, it, was, it was like anything, you know, there are all sorts of random things that could happen at any moment. Now, in addition to all those random things, there's these Mack trucks or freight trains, you know, in our face, kind of, you could say. Exactly. More than one. More. It's not just the pandemic. Like, you, you said the pandemic was just a part of it. What else is creating anxiety for you or contributing to, to that sense of angst? And In addition oh, to your I age, think... you know, as we get older, 
as we get yeah. closer and closer yeah, to our end, I guess yeah. a certain level of anxiety, you know, as we witness and experience directly, you know, viscerally, our bodies kind of falling apart. <laughs> you can't help but feel that way. I'm feeling that way. Well, it's a, it's a weird thing for me because I went from one yoga class a day to two to four. Wow. So I'm like probably stronger in better health than I ever have been. However, I'm also, you know, rowing against the tide or that's not really the metaphor, whatever it is. Like the, it's not the tide, it's the current. <laughs> that word, that word really, it's not, you don't row in the, yeah, because I am aging. So I know it's the one thing I feel like I can sort of control. I was telling my son the other day, it's like, the little bit that I might understand about anorexia, which I, I think most many women do. I mean, I understand it on the level. You know, it, it, part of it is I can control one thing, one thing in the world, my body. And if I want to starve myself, I'll, I'll starve myself. I'll lose weight or gain. You know, like you can, that's the only thing you can control. And I can twist myself now into contortions that I never dreamed possible. I can touch my toes now, which I never could even as a middle school student. You know, like I can do a crow pose, which I never thought. You know, like, so I can do this. So that's a healthy, I think that's a healthy power, because I think that's what yoga does. It says, you know, you can breathe through this. But, you know, I went in for my annual mammogram, and then they send me a letter and say, well, we saw something, you now have to come back, which has happened to me before, not often, but so that wasn't pleasant. So it's like, oh, now I've got to start having cancer fantasies. But I'm not. I'm just going to control it. I'll go in. It's probably nothing, or if it is something, I'll deal with it. I think the main anxiety is that, it's just a low-level recognition that things are, you know, it's, it's just true. It's, it's just, you know, I don't need to make it pretty. And I live in a country that I love, but it's really a sick place in so many ways that is rebirthing in beautiful ways. I mean, all these cultural changes are, like, crazy wonderful. And at the same time, you know, so I don't know. I'm lucky. I work I love, and I have some projects I'm working on that I really like. But I have stopped listening to the radio from morning to night because that was causing me anxiety and making me pissed off, and I don't want to do that anymore. So I listen to more music, and I go out and plant lots of rose bushes. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds great. I mean, listening to the news has driven me crazy, too. I mean, it, it got me to the point where I was just, like, furious and getting back into my my old if I had a rocket launcher days. Yep. Totally. Yes. And I I want to stay informed and I will stay informed. And I, I have some some ideas about some projects of trying to support people. I mean, expansions of things I'm already doing, but support people to create smaller educational collectives as alternatives to sending their kids back to school because every single family needs to keep their kids home. I mean, they just do. And yet I understand the economic reality, and I understand that they're believing some myth that their child is better off being in school. I understand that. It's not even because I don't get the fact that the kids miss school, they miss their friends. And, like, there's a lot of advantages to having a child in, in school. But this is, like, so freaking obvious that, <laughs> like, okay, how we're all kids... saying that we have to be six Well, how do, six how do the apart, kids feel? Right? <laughs> Carla, you're a teacher. You must, yeah. you must yeah. talk oh, to the kids. kids. Are, oh, what do they heart, want? Yeah, it's heartbreaking. What do they oh want to do? Do they want to go back to school? Do they, they want to hang out with their friends? No. 
both. They want their, they are experiencing life in a very normal way. They are scared. They're having a, they feel like all of us do. They don't necessarily want to go back to school. I will tell you that. I mean, I spent the last, the whole spring with them. High school kids. They're scared. They're afraid. Which makes sense. They don't know what's going to happen. They're really sad. They're grieving the loss of a life that they knew and they wanted. They really miss their friends. They want it back the way that it was, even though they didn't really like it that much. But they liked parts of it. But they don't want to get sick either. And they don't want to make their parents sick. So I that no, they don't really, it's not this idea about, this, of course, you know, Trump, but of course he's a moron. But, you know, it's like the kids want to go back. The parents want them to go back. Like, shut the fuck up. It's, that's not exactly what's happening here. It's not about whether or not people want. I mean, I want a million dollars. Are you going to give me a million dollars as the federal government? I mean, you don't just do what people want. You say, what is in people's best interest? And we have to make the decision for them. And right now we need schools that have no more than 10 people in them. And even, the, I mean, like, let's figure out ways to support the education and it's not permanent. I mean, I, hopefully this will lead to permanent changes for the better in employment, in schools, in health care, in everything. If we were smart, we would use those lessons, but we may not be yet. But I am not saying we should close schools right now and never allow kids back in. But when we have a vaccine, <laughs> that will make a huge difference. Then we're vaccinating people and sending them back to school, which is like, okay, this makes sense. We don't have a vaccine. Why on earth would you open the schools? We will have a vaccine. See, this is the thing. But you sound confident not in time for the election. That. What? Oh, we'll definitely have a vaccine. I mean, we'll have a vaccine. Well, actually, and then the, vaccine the health, the health experts do. don't say that. Even the gung-ho vaccine people are, are saying that... Uh, they're not sure that they'll be able to come oh. up with a vaccine within the next have, 18 months yeah, even. I mean, they, a lot of them are saying yeah, three to five years. Nothing. And by that time, this pandemic will be a thing of the past and we'll have new things to deal with. So so this whole thing exactly. about this a vaccine for this pandemic is is almost irrelevant. I, I think the, maybe, maybe I think the it, bottom line Maybe is, it helps they, with they, they public, you know, public sentiment or, you know, making the public feel safe enough to go back to quote-unquote normal or a more normal yeah. existence. I think they'll come up with a va- I think they'll come up with a vaccine because historically we always have created a vaccine. But the thing I is that even Anthony a- Fauci, one of the last things from Anthony Fauci himself, the vaccine king, yeah. he said just a few days ago, he said that he's not sure that the vaccine will, he doesn't even know how long the immunity will last. Yeah. Because we don't know. See, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a vaccine skeptic anyway. Like, I'm not one of those fringe anti-vaccine people. I'm kind of, I've always sort of been in between. I've always been of the mind that we have to learn to live with viruses. Like, we have to learn how to live with them. And the pure way to do that is you just basically just grow and adapt to it and let lots of people die until, you know, we naturally... <laughs> but that's not... But that's actually going to happen. The, right. That's not going to happen because we, we define nature at every turn. And nature's way is to cull the herd of the weak and the sick and the old. Uh, but, yeah. And we, yeah. don't, we don't subscribe to that. We, we think we can, no. we can outdo no. nature. 
or keep nature and under we control. And can outdo nature for very short periods of time. Like for just a very short period of time, we can somewhat control something with a certain kind of seed or something. So no, it's not a cure-all. Look, we're not going to cure this. If anything, we, we're leading to the creation of much stronger viruses that are going to be way more deadly. And so I think that, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I know enough about science to know that that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. I wish that we were having real conversations in the, in the world. I mean, I say this every day whenever anybody will listen to me. We're having, as usual, the wrong conversation. So the conversation isn't just about how to get back to work more quickly or this. And you know what, Tony, I think you know this about me. It's not, I mean, I'm not a woman of great means, and I was a single parent, and I was unemployed and lived on the streets. And so it's not like I don't understand the importance of employment when you have a kid. Like, I understand food lines, and I, you know, I get it. I've been there, and I understand it. But we as a society need to figure out how to support everybody while we just aren't going back to work and we just aren't going back to school and we figure out a sustainable response to this. But one of the more likely responses is some kind of a vaccine. And you're right, they, know, they don't know for sure about anything. They don't know if, you, if you've had the disease, whether you're immune to it, and if you are, for how long. Like, they don't know. You're right. They don't know. Not, they don't, so, but the conversation is we don't know. But we don't have those conversations in the United States because we have to fix things immediately. And that's why I became a teacher. I thought, well, let's have conversations. Like critical, let's like be critical thinkers. Anyway, you know how to, But we're not. So we raise the generations of people who don't want to have critical conversations about anything. But it's not everybody because, we've had, we're, you know, there's this young generation that's emerging that's amazing that is challenging everything. And so it's the both end. It's just a lot. That's all. It's just a lot. It's intense. This is a very intense time. That's all. So you, you, so you the said, reaction is anxiety for me anyway. You just, and that's okay. I'm, I, I want to get, I want to get into what you just brought up. You say there's a new generation that that's thinking differently. Tell me more about your experience of that and how prevalent that is and how you've, where you're seeing that and how you see that? Well, I mean, as a teacher, I've always been lucky enough to work with young people by choice. And, you know, I do think that there's an energy, and when we cultivate it, and I don't even want to say allow it, but sadly, because of power dynamics, it does come down to whether or not we allow, you know, the, the real fruits of, their, of young, young people's, you know, sight and brilliance to, you know, be heard and seen. Like, you know, young people have always, for me, been the barometers and the mirrors for society. I mean, they they tell the truth, they know it, they do. But, you know, so what I've seen in this round of being closer to students in the classroom is really strong, critical thinking young people who want something different and they are angry and should be that they now have to fix some of the major problems that have been thrown at them without their consent. And so every generation might say the same thing. You know, my youth, we, we were certainly, when I think about Vietnam and I think about the, the development of the, you know, just the industrial militarized, you know, way of the way we were developing our society, that wasn't my doing, and, and we, we fought against it to some extent. That's why we have so many young people who are recognizing climate change, and they're very upset. All my students, the biggest issues that they had this year, because they were all doing projects this year before we did COVID school, which was remote, which we still continued, but not as much as we did in the classroom. You know, they wanted to study police brutality. They wanted to study climate change. They wanted to study discrimination and hate. Like, they were picking these topics. 
they're done with it. They want the, they want something. They want a different world. And I will tell you, I'm not working in like what's called, you know, whatever. I don't even believe in this, but you know, like gifted schools or these kids are critical thinkers or this. But I mean, this is a bunch of kids that actually their lit, quote unquote literacy skills, according to schools, is, are not that well developed. They don't read that well. They don't write. They don't really read anymore. <laughs> they don't read books uh, unless they have to, and and that's fine. You know, they read other kinds of things, or they're really into graphic novels they like you know they're, they're a different kind of learner and they're thinking about the world and so i think what we're seeing on the news they're also some of them and when they're positioned they are rebelling you know they're they're pushing they're pushing they're saying we want this done we'll you know burn these freaking buildings down and i say hallelujah <laughs> so do you see this happening in in a lot of schools do you do you think that there are a lot of teachers yeah. that are that are supportive of this kind of oh, self-generated learning or self-determined learning. No, no? just no, you. That, that's not changed. That's you. No, that's not changed. And you have the freedom well, to do that. Me. I have the freedom, and I've always taken the freedom. See, I I happen to be at a school where I am supported, which I appreciate that. Although it's a very traditional, it's ironically, it's also, a, and I've said this to the administration. This is the most conservative school I've ever worked for. But they said, well, you're taking us where we plan on going, which is fine. Then, so I don't get in, in trouble, you know, at the school like I did in other places. But my teaching has not changed dramatically. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that I don't want to change as a teacher. I want to grow and learn as a human being. But my belief, my foundational belief that students are the center of the curriculum and it's critically important that they drive it, that's never changed. That's always been the case. So I just try to figure out ways to do that, and then when I find myself not doing it, then I have to call myself out and then make it and then make those changes. So I've always had faith in young people, and I think that they're showing themselves right now as being very strong and very creative. And I do think that they're they're going to and are doing amazing things. So you're talking yeah, about when, when they're, they're given the space. space and the support to do that. Yeah, and if not, they, they're taking it. I think that some of the riots in the streets, I don't call them riots, but the re resistance movements, the occupations, the you know Black Lives Matter movement is a very young movement. So with the students that you've been working with, you're doing this all remotely through Zoom, I presume, or things like that? Yeah, like before spring break, we realized that something was happening and that it was getting worse, and we were going right into spring break. I remember correctly that the students went on spring break a week early and then we went right into professional development so that the school could basically tell us what we'd be doing which is teaching everything remotely that the students would not come back and it really reminds me of you know when you're flying and getting ready to board the plane and then all of a sudden it says oh we need 10 more minutes and then it's like oh we need 10 more minutes and then 10 minutes becomes 20 and then it's two hours and then eventually like there's no flight <laughs> And so infuriating because you just want to say, why didn't you just tell me there was going to be no flight? And then they say, we didn't know, you know, whatever. And they kind of, you know, they did know. But it's the same kind of thing. Like, I knew we weren't going to go back. But for whatever reason, I mean, they don't like do it in a way that would allow people to really do something well. Like, we're not going back. This is going to be a full semester. It's more like, for now, we're doing this thing. And so, as a result, and you, you probably read about this because people have written about it, and it's really true, we didn't really teach the students through online remote learn. We did, but true online remote learning is actually done with intention and design. What we did was emergency COVID school. 
which is what all schools did. It's like, well, we're not coming back, so we have to throw something together. And so everybody did something different. I will say my school actually did a pretty good job, although, you know, it, it ended up not being in the best interest of the kids, but they weren't willing to really change it. What we did is we just all kept exactly the same schedule as we would have if we were teaching face-to-face and just signed on, although the administrators luckily knew that it doesn't make sense to keep a student, because we have 90-minute block classes, because you're supposed to be doing projects, which many teachers don't do because they don't know how to do it. So they knew it wouldn't make sense to keep somebody on a Zoom meeting for 90 minutes, and then the student goes on to the next class, and it's 90 minutes. I mean, that's like, you can't do it. So you have to just basically sign on and do what you think you should do with your students. So because I teach a little differently, I had already created, I went, I went to Canvas, which is, you know, an online, it's like Blackboard. And I had already created an online portal that was pretty complex. Like it had a library and it had, you know, everything was there. And we had a routine. And so for me, transitioning to online learning was fairly seamless because it fit my style of teaching. In other words, I'd already created my class as a hybrid. Because for me, this myth that students do all the learning when they're in front of you, it's like it's a made-up story. Most of the time, they're doing it at home or in their heads or when they're taking a walk or the last minute when they throw together a bunch of assignments. So I always teach assuming that they're not really listening to me because I really don't lecture anyway. But if I was giving them information, they're not listening anyway. So I'm certainly not going to lecture on Zoom. So I made a few minor adjustments. I always showed like some kind of a TED Talk or some short film for them to write field notes on. And I chose shorter films. Like over Zoom, I'm not going to show a 15-minute film. I'll show like a six-minute film. So I made adjustments that we were online together. And so then... The waiting thing, like the airport thing, started to happen. Like, I think we're going to go back in May. You know, and we're all going like, we're going to go back in May. <laughs> we're like, why? <laughs> School is out in June. And then finally they went, okay, we're taking the whole semester off. It's ridiculous. Like, who who operates that way? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it sounds like our society. It's the way well, our, our world works. We never face reality. We're never <laughs> honest about what's what's going on. And what's least really of, happening. Least I of know. all, we're never honest about not knowing what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, I want to get back yeah. to your classroom, like how you yeah. were doing it remotely with your class, how, yeah. how the class happened, how the kids were engaging, because you said you were doing projects and kids were getting yeah. involved in these projects of their own choosing and their own interest. Yeah. How is it happening while you were online together, and then talk about what they then did with it. Well, at the risk of tooting my own horn, which is fine, whatever, because I already teach, I mean, this is kind of, for me, this was the important piece, which I, you know, I mean, I think my school knows this, which is kind of, it is true, it's where they want to go, but I had set it up in August when I first met these students with every single quote-unquote assignment that they would get from August until the very end. In other words, we would be on this path together for nine months, ten months actually, and together we would be building this portfolio. 
and the portfolio would be based on these things called modules. It's not the best name for them, but that's what Canvas calls them. They're like chapters or areas of study, right? You could call them projects. But for me, I have this thing about project-based learning. Like, I don't like to just do random activities just to do random activities. Although I am not against random activities, but let's call them that. Like, let's, then let's say, this isn't really school. This is just a time that we're going to play together and do random activities. I want them to know that I have a method to my madness and that I'm trying to manipulate them <laughs> to be a certain kind of a person, and they can feel free to challenge me on that. So you're, so up, you're up front with all them. The cr- yeah. I said, look, I want you to be a critical thinker. I want you to be a critical writer. And then I'm taking this entire class and I'm turning it into a media class. So I took all the work that I put into for the class that Goddard didn't want, and I taught that. So I took all of those modules and these kids did them, and they got it, which was the exciting part. And it didn't matter whether it was remote or in person, because they were able to keep doing it because I set it up in August. So I felt that the transition for me was easy in terms of curriculum. So, for example, Module 1 was around observing, listening, and being a witness. Because I wanted them to be, and I told them, from this is a, this is a class on media, because English language arts really translated into today's world, or actually any world, but let's even talk about today's particularly. It's all about media. I mean, whether you want to call media TikTok or whether you want to call it, you know, Instagram or Facebook or, you know, email or website. I mean, it's media. Newspapers, right? It's all media. Books, it's media. So that interests young people more than if I say, you know, we're reading The Great Gatsby. So, and I'm also, as you know, very interested in media. And then they would be creating, and I brought all my radio stuff in, my microphones and everything in, so, and then I created a recording studio so they could make podcasts, they could do all of these things. And I had to encourage them constantly when they kept asking me, well, what am I supposed to do? And I would keep telling them, well, what do you want to do? The module is on being a listener. How can you show me that you're a good listener? So it forced them, in a way, to think about the kind of activities and projects that they wanted to do to show evidence in that regard. So because I live on the planet Earth and the school actually pays me to do something besides just, you know, confuse my students, I would give them assignments that would scaffold this. Do you know what I mean? Like I would say, okay, here's a TED Talk on being a witness. Here's a whole bunch of articles you can read on being a witness. Keep field notes, you know. You can do this by audio. You can write it. You can, you know. So it worked. the evil plan worked because it always does work. At the beginning, the students become very upset with me because I'm confusing them. They want an assignment. They want me to tell them how to do the assignment, and then they want an A because they did everything. And I keep telling them that I'm not going to do that because <laughs> I'm just not. So eventually they start to not be afraid that I'm going to really mess with them. So then they start playing my game. The only reason that young people get really angry with teachers and should is if they think that they're going to get in trouble for, you know, like, do you know what I'm saying, Tony? Like, the kids, they drove me crazy with this. It's like they just wanted me to hand them everything and have Mm -hmm. them just do what I say, and then that way they wouldn't have to be afraid they'd get a bad grade. Mm -hmm. And I told them, I said, I completely understand why you feel this way because I'm guessing based on the questions you ask me and your behavior around me that that's happened to you 
where you did an assignment the way you thought you were supposed to do it, handed it in, felt good about it, and then didn't get a very good grade. And then, of course, there's no going back. So for me, I told them you can do an assignment as many times as you want. I'll look at it, and then you just keep working on it till you get the points. And I told them, and the points are just me trying to get you to do what it is that I want you to do, like you better cite this because you quoted somebody, you know, or maybe you should spell field, F-I-E-L-D, E-I-L-D, you know, some things like that. Or do you have anything more you'd want to say about that? Or you just didn't, you blew off this entire assignment or whatever. So I just tried to use assignments. And then we had a routine. Every time they came into class, I had something that used to be called sponge activities, but they call them bell ringers now. Bell ringers. Anyway. So, and I love poetry, so I always give them a poem. Somebody would read the poem out loud if they wanted to, and then I gave them a bunch of questions to make them think about it, and they would just write anything that they want. I said, if you want to write what you had for breakfast, then write what you had for breakfast. If that's really what you want to put in your, in your bell ringer, then do that. So as a result, and I, and I tracked everything in this site, this Canvas site. Like, it's all there, all the poems we read, all the questions. Like, everything was there. So if they blew it off or they didn't, they were absent or, you know, they didn't want to do it on Tuesday, they can always go back and read that Mary Oliver poem and then write about why it was beautiful. And it was really interesting because they were all over the place with it. You know, some of them wrote very, very thoughtfully and others were just like, you know, I think the author was saying that the bird was a turtle or it doesn't even, I don't even care what they wrote. I mean, I care, but... I wasn't, you know, I wanted them to just have a routine where they read some poems, they thought about it. It's just practice reflection, practice critical thinking about something. If you don't like my poem, then bring in your own poem. And then I brought in media for them to either listen on. I brought in lots of radio, lots of TED Talks, lots of documentaries, short ones. And they were all compartmentalized based on these modules, these modules that, you know, created for our radio curriculum at Goddard. It's with the same ones. They went from being, you know, observer, listener, witness, to strengthening voice, to, I have to, I mean, I memorized them, but it's been a while since I looked at them. But I really liked, I mean, the more I worked on these, I really started to love these lenses. And then I was able to see them as lenses. So I actually am going to keep using them because I'd, they're good. I'd, you can apply like them to, to anything. I'd like you to flesh these out some more. These the, steps. The, the, the modules? These, yeah, okay. These, I, I, these, I, can, I can, yeah. These layers. I these, can do that. Cause I, these you know, aspects I just, of it. Look. Yeah, because I'm going to, I don't know whether I told you I got a new job for next year at the same school, but it's like a dream job for me. They hired me just to do senior projects, the capstone project. That's all I'll be doing is working with the graduating seniors on their final, because they want to change, they know how I feel about it, and they agree with me that historically have been reports. The students have been babied, like do a report on dinosaurs and then present it, and you graduate from P.K. Young, which is a bunch of crap. They want it to tr- be true inquiry projects, you know, really the kind that I was already doing with my 10th graders. And I partly, I told them, boy, if you do this with me now as a 10th grader, by the time you're a senior and you have to do it to graduate, you are going to be made in the shade. Like, you are, you're done because, you know, you're going to have this entire project. So I constructed everything from beginning to end on this Canvas page. So when we went to remote learning school, I had everything already there. So the students only had to just keep working on stuff. So the difference was that, you know, they were just really depressed. I mean, part of the issue was is that they were depressed and disengaged with things. So anyway, so we would set up these Zoom meetings. I kept moving. We were building these e-portfolios together. They were creating all kinds of 
we, we kept our routine. I did bell rings. I just did it all online. Is that you know we did it all on Zoom, and so I kept the schedule up. And then they were all working on their portfolio. But then I did something that I think was kind of radical, <laughs> and I knew it was gonna. It was kind of funny. Our very first Zoom class, I said, you guys have been building a portfolio in Google Docs. And I told you at the very beginning of the year that bit by bit, we were going to move it out of Google Docs and into ePortfolio, which is part of the Canvas. So Canvas is a very well-known, utilized learning management system that many universities use. Blackboard is another one. I mean, I've used many of them. It just becomes like a portal, you know, a little bit like a website, but it's organized so that you can click on different things and take your class. So my school was moving all the faculty onto Canvas when I was hired. So I jumped right on board because I like learning management systems. I like having a method to the madness because I see it as it's freeing me up. I don't know if it makes sense, but it's, it's like having a schedule and a routine can help you be even more creative. You know, like, it doesn't have to, like, clip your wings. It's just a place where the students can go to find stuff. I do understand. Yeah. It's like a certain rudimentary structure that supports everybody because you know where you fit within these kind of rough parameters. Exactly. And so for me, it, it makes it feel like I'm now more free because you know what's expected. And I say, I want you to know there's a method to this madness because ultimately I want you to be free. I mean, it actually became a joke by the end of the year. I mean, the kids are not stupid. Like they are figuring me out and they're being teenagers and they're fighting me because they know that I'm asking them to be free. And they're trying to tell me they don't want to be free. They want me to tell them what to do. So the undercurrent is that's the conversation. Well, that, you know, that's an, so inter that's an interesting conversation yeah. in itself. The whole thing for me, of course, which is why I keep doing it, is because I love this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm very passionate about it. And so I think that's one of the reasons why I think that it ends up working, at least for me, even with kids that don't want to do the work, even though they want to be pissed at me because I'm making them think. Because they, then they don't want to think. You know, then it becomes that kind of thing. And it's, it's fine. It doesn't get on my nerves. I mean, every now and then I'll dramatize it with them, but they know it's all theater and it doesn't matter. So I want them to be responsible for their own learning. And they ultimately, in the end, were, I would say, without exception. There may be an exception to everything that kids said. But so I thought to myself, how will I use these modules? So I'm calling them modules because that's what Canvas calls them. I don't like the name module, but it's like a chapter to the class. Mm -hmm. So when you're a more traditional teacher, which I'm not, they would say, okay, Module 1, I teach social studies. So Module 1 is World War II. You see what I'm saying? Module 2 mm -hmm. is, you know, Vietnam. Yep. Like, it would be like chapters in a book. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't look at the world that way, <laughs> so I didn't construct my, my class that way, which, of course, further confuses the students because my modules transcend the content. Give an example of how yeah. you would so, do it. So what I've done is I've actually loved working on this so much last year that I've kept them all, and now I'm, I'm renaming them as lenses, because that's really what they were. So lens was, was being a listener, observer, and a witness, and we talked a lot about what that meant. Module two was strengthening voice and agency. The next one was kind of this idea of being in the world, being an actor in the world. Then there was one on ethics, you know, and this was all part of, you know, media, so we talked about ethical considerations and fake news and all that kind of stuff. 
give some examples of actual conversations that you had with some of these students or some of the things that they brought up, that they brought to the conversation and how they did it. Okay. So I'll starting with the very first one. You know that teaching, well, you don't know what I mean. You know, it's not just teaching. Life is not linear. Mm-hmm. Learning is not linear. Mm-hmm. Storytelling is not linear. Like, none of these are linear. Nothing is linear. And, and human beings We're themselves not are not yeah. linear. Exactly. So, and I will admit, I mean, I'm comfortable with nonlinear structures. And I also, because I, I want to be a good teacher and a compassionate human being, I also don't want to just frustrate people who have had to live in a system that told them that everything was linear. So I don't want to pretend like, why can't you do this? You know what I'm saying? So I spent as much time as I could looping back through and explaining it to the point where it was ridiculous. The thing about why a lot of people don't teach, and I get it, is that 90% of the time nobody's listening to me. And I don't even lecture. See, this is the thing. If I was a lecturing teacher, it would be much worse. Like, this is how you do I think about all my colleagues at PK Young. They lecture the entire time, and the kids take notes, and then they regurgitate it. So I don't, and they don't even listen to me, and I'm barely talking to them. Mm-hmm. So I just show them a lot of stuff, and then I ask them to do something with it. So, like, the first unit was on listening, observing, and witnessing. So the bell ringers is, you know, these random selections of poems and different things that they kept their bell ringer files. And then they kept what I asked them to be field notes. And I had this whole series of different things that I found some great TED Talks on being a witness. Many, and one that they really remembered was this woman who was talking about modern-day slavery. The kids loved that TED Talk, where this woman was talking. She was a photographer, and she went to places all over the world and realized there's slaves today all over the world. I mean, they were, like, blown away. I'm teaching in the South. You know, most of my students are African-American. I mean, it's just like, whoa. They got the idea of what it meant to be a witness. Then I found TED Talks on this woman did this other great thing on just creating art that had almost optical illusions based on how you observed it. So I just said, this is just stuff for you to think about. That's all I wanted. And then they would constantly be asking me questions. What am I supposed to write? (laughs) Am I supposed to summarize the video? I said, if you want to summarize, do you like summarizing things? No. Well, then I would suggest that you not. (laughs) Like, this is what my class was like all the time, Tony. All it was me just saying... Just write something. You don't want to write, then you can go into the recording studio and you can make a little little mini podcast out of it. Do you want to do a collage of photographs about witnessing? (laughs) Like, they could do it any way they wanted. And the more freedom I gave them, the more anxiety they had. And I know I've been teaching long enough to understand that I'm doing this on purpose, that I'm trying to create just enough level of anxiety to get them to burst but not enough to be cruel, you know, that's just making them absolutely miserable and disheartened. So it's a fine line, and it's a navigation constantly. And some kids get very angry, and they know it. Like, (laughs) one kid, I'll never forget this conversation. One kid. And say again why... APA. Say again why you approach them this way and, and set it up this way for them. Well, first of all, it's what I've told them explicitly. Never listen to your teachers. You have to question everything that they tell you, including what I'm telling you right now. <laughs> and knowing that I've just asked them to question me about questioning, I mean, they're not stupid. They know I, they laugh. And part of it is I try, and I, I wasn't successful with every student just because you just can't. 
with people. But most kids tend to like me. Like, even when they get angry with me, they like me, you know, and they know that I'm kind. Like, you know, I got some very sweet emails at the end, which helped me, you know, was I too hard on these kids? And it's like, you know, you were always kind, you know, and I was like, so I try to remain kind, even though, I mean, you know, teenagers are <laughs> ruthless. Yeah. You know, impossible. they're also beautiful. So I'm just, oh, they're impossible. I know. I so, was, I was I know. one of the impossible ones. <laughs> yes. So, and then if they feel really uncomfortable, they'll go home and tell their parent, and their parent will call you up and say, what are you doing? So I said, whatever. This is not a school of privilege or anything. It's a very diverse school. So they're all over the place. But I try to just stay and go on record as being accepting and kind and flexible. I told them that I would only give A, Bs, or Fs. They were either going to do really well or they just didn't do it. And I didn't want to give an F, but I don't like grades, and they wouldn't let me give an incomplete because what I really want to do is A, B, or incomplete. So I played around with that model, and I checked in on their portfolios every two weeks and gave them feedback. So the system works because they're building something. They're building this thing called a portfolio that needs to address all the modules. You're actually doing this very much like you do with your advisee groups at Goddard. Oh, of course. I do this with graduate students. I do this with school principals. It's the same. I do it with any age. You can do it with any age. It's because that's what life is. Like, Tonya, mm-hmm. when you think about your, your show, like when we live as human beings on this planet, we may do it differently because our learning styles are different. But ultimately, we are working towards some outcome, right, that mm-hmm. has what we consider to be elements of quality. To be relevant yeah. to exactly. our lives, to yeah. life, to life itself. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. like I want to create a garden, and I'm not 100% sure what... I want in it, but I'll, I, you know, some some things will remain unknown. But I know I like roses. Like everybody has knows how to do. That's what you do. I want to support students to do that. So by having them ultimately work towards a portfolio and then integrate pieces that are based on criteria, that's a very sophisticated thing that I'm asking them to do. So because of that, I do what I think try to do what a good teacher would do, which is I scaffold it. I build these little stairways to help them there and give them a lot of freedom along the way. So I gave them every single module in August, and we went over them. And I said, you're going to digest these or not. Like, you're going to get this or not. But you eventually will get all of it. So part of the time you'll be confused. I'll explain it as best I can. But these are just all, you know, units that are all within these modules. So I renamed this, you know, went in there and I renamed them as units. And so there were these different units that had all these things that were really important. Like unit one, you're going to be a good listener, observer, and you're going to learn how to do that well. And I'm going to give you things to think about and some assignments. And then I'm going to give you an actual assignment, which was you're going to pick some external environment outside of the school and one inside of the school. And you can do this in a group. And you're going to create a table with criteria. And I taught them what the word criteria meant. And then you're going to look for stuff. Like if you're going to go to the elementary school playground here at school, what are you looking for? Are you looking for laughing children? Are you looking for... And then I ask them questions like, well, we're going, to, we're going to up the bar on this one. I want you to use a critical multicultural lens. So when you look at the playground, what are you seeing in terms of race, class, gender? <laughs> you know, so, so some of them really get it. Like, you know, I heard like four different languages and I, you know... I realized most people here were white, you know. <laughs> and then I had students who actually tallied. I saw three black people, four were Hispanic. It was hysterical. 
But it's all good because they're just starting to look at the world through different lenses. And then I moved on to strengthening their voice. I found some hysterical YouTube videos on that. I found some <laughs> some screamer guy in a screamer band, like hard rock band, who was giving voice lessons about how you can scream as part of a screamer band. It was hysterical. I cracked myself up. I don't know if they found it as funny as I did. But I would just find anything that had to do with strengthening of their voice. I found, all, of course, all kinds of TED Talks on, you know, I'm bisexual or I'm this and this is what I do to strengthen you know, yeah. I had one student become very upset because he said all of my media was too liberal for him. And I said, you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you brought it up. What are you going to do about it? So he was challenging me to bring in some more, you know, voices. And he was right. And I was just doing that when COVID school hit. Then they did a digital story that was an assignment to strengthen their voice. They did recording studio voice samples where they just did audio samples on anything. They wrote an autobiography and then they read it out loud and they did it three times. We partnered with the sixth grade since we're a K-12 school and they went and worked with the sixth graders and helped them record their own stories. These were audio. Some of them were audio, some they had visual, some were, they were written. Like, they were all multidisciplinary, and they were, you know, multimodality. So they were really using their but voice the, in every way yeah. you could get them to use their voice. In any way they could use their voice, I asked them to use their voice. Mm -hmm. And I said, especially in communicating with me. You know, people who are good students who get school were probably, some of them, not all of them, but a couple of them were the most frustrated. You know, because I did. I said, look, I want, also want you to learn how to write an essay, because... You're going to college. I want you to write a college essay because you're all applying for dual enrollment. You're going to Santa Fe College next year as juniors and seniors, and I want to help you write the essay. I don't want you to have to do it by yourself. You know what I'm this getting? How you do APA. You know what I'm getting about what? this? I'm getting a visual. It's like when kids go to school, they feel like they're being railroaded through the system and that they have no control, no self-determination whatsoever. And what you're doing is you're, you're saying – Okay, here's here's the driver's seat. Get in it. Here's the steering wheel. Here's how you, you use the, the gears and the foot pedals and the rearview mirrors and, and everything. And I want you to drive this car. Yeah. No more of this waiting for us to tell you exactly what to do and how to do it. And then we give you a grade when you demonstrate your ability to please us. <laughs> yeah. Actually, flip the script. You flip, you flip the script. Mm -hmm. So flipping the script, I think, is what good... I mean, that's, I like to flip the script on students, but I, I also want to be, you know, simultaneously, I want to be responsive and compassionate, and I also don't want to baby them either, because some students just, you know, they, they just they say, I'm not going to do it, or, and then I can't, you know. I did make a decision, though. It was a, it was a hard decision, but also an easy decision, is that I didn't fail any students after COVID school went in because things I felt were too devastating. And, and people could think, see that as being enabling or what. But it was, I don't, it was I kind of it. an educational stimulus package. <laughs> yeah, because we had students who had people die. I mean, we had two students whose, whose father died during wow. COVID. It wasn't COVID. It was like heart attacks. It was like other stuff. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't even matter what the cause of the death was. We had deaths. We had, you know, it was a rough semester. The kids were really progressively. They started out pretty engaged. They had their cameras on in Zoom. And then bit by bit, all the cameras went off. And I just said, you don't have to have your camera on. I'm not going to make it. At first, I was going to make him. Then I said, I'm not going to make him. So I just kept sporting them. But you when we went from regular school 
Okay, let me, this is an important piece. Okay. So I was teaching them how to build their portfolio in Google Docs, and they're very familiar with Google Docs because this is a school where every student is given a Chromebook, which is a piece of crap. I hate them. I know they're inexpensive, and I think it's great that every student gets a piece of technology because not all kids can have a computer. But I don't know if you know about Chromebooks, but Chromebooks do not have, you know, you can't manipulate documents. Okay. So everything's in Google Docs. So I said, look, we're going to use Google Docs, but then you're going to turn everything you created in this class into a PDF, and then you're going to upload it into something called an ePortfolio, which is yours. You own it. You can download it and take it with you next year and reuse all your assignments with your junior English teacher. So I want them to own their work. I said, if you just link your portfolio that you're building with me to Google Docs, which was really easy at the end, which some refused to, I had a couple who just, no matter what I said, they just, I said, look, you can't keep doing this. That you're turning over all your power, because if the University of Florida decides they don't want to use Google Docs anymore, or they take your account and they blow it up, or, you know, the link dies, you've lost everything. And it took me all year for them to understand, what are we doing in Google Docs? What's this portfolio? Like, they just... So most of what I was doing, too, was teaching them technology, like how to use technology. Some of them just never done any of this stuff. So this metaphor worked really well. I said a Google Doc was never designed to be a portfolio. Even though some schools use them as portfolios, they're not. They're not assessments. They are boxes where you put stuff. So they're maker spaces. If you want to give someone you love a coffee table for their birthday, you go in the garage and you build it. Google Docs is the garage. <laughs> when it's done, you move it into the living room. An e-portfolio is a living room. Then they got it. So I had them create their e-portfolio in August. And I said, you are not going to work in here. We'll revisit this in May. So they all had them created. They just, you know, the link was created in the system they didn't have any idea what they were doing. They just did what their teacher told them to do. And I just said, I want this all ready to go in May. Then we went to Google Docs, and we spent eight months creating lots and lots and lots of stuff in Google Docs, right? So then COVID school, I call it COVID school. COVID school started, you know, Zoom nightmare school, online emergency school. And I said, I now want you to all go into Google Docs. I want you to delete everything. <laughs> I came up with this idea in the middle of the night. I knew it was going to be awesome because I knew that they were going to flip out. So I just want you to delete everything. I want you to delete everything. Delete our bell ringers? I said, delete everything. I said, except, I said, except if you look at it and if you love it. Like, oh, I love that bell ringer. I love that field note. I love that table that I, I created for my... And if not, just delete it. Can we delete our essays? Delete your... I said, I don't care. Delete your essays. Delete... <laughs> I mean, it's like a nightmare for a student who knows nothing but listening to their teacher. Are you sure? Like, you know, it was like, are you going to grade us down if it's missing? <laughs> I said, well, what do you think? You've now known me for eight months. Is that what you're thinking I'm asking? I am asking you to delete something and then I'm going to fail you. Is that? And they go, no, 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 you would never do that. So then why are you asking me that question? Like, those are the co- that was my class. Like, talk to me about what is informing you. So they did. A lot of them did. They deleted it. I said, now you're going to build an e-portfolio during our emergency Zoom, whatever you want to call this time. 
Now you're building it on your, completely on your own terms. Here's all of the units that we've talked about, and they're your criteria, and then you are going to create artifacts or evidence that shows that you've addressed that criteria, like being a good listener and observer and a witness, strengthening your voice. One of my favorites was knowing landscape, context, and history. So I taught them, you know, understanding when you study media, you understand the landscape, what surrounds it. You understand the context, you know, what's the purpose of it. And the history, what happened before. I had them do, I mean, I had given them, they had all these assignments they could have used. Again, give, you know, me, give me an used. example of, of something. So I found this really funny video on the history of media. And so it's like eight minutes. And it shows these two monks from like whatever long ago. And they're mimicking what an IT guy would do in days when somebody couldn't figure out how to use a book. When books were invented. So I thought it was a brilliant little... So the guy is saying, I don't know how to open this. And then the guy says, okay, show me your book. And, you know, and so it, it's this funny little video. You know, the meaning was obvious that technology is relative. Like, we're thinking technology is computers, and people have to call IT people and say, I can't get my browser to work, and I can't get this to work. But years ago, when scrolls, you know, became books, that was technology, you know, so it must have been right around 1400s or whatever. But it was a funny video, and so we watched it, and then I had to sort of, the kids explain it to kids who didn't get it. So I said, and here's a, a handy website on the history of technology that you can use if you want that will take you through from the beginning of the printed word to, you know, today's Instagram, TikTok, whatever. So just work in groups and create timelines, because they love timelines, and honestly, so do I. I love timelines and maps. Like, I just love them. <laughs> They're fun, and you can do whatever you want with them. So as often as I could in class, I got out big pieces of butcher paper. They were all in groups anyway. That was one of the things that we lost in COVID school. You know, they were all in groups, and they had tables, and most of the time, you know, they could just, we'd start off class together when we were face-to-face. -face. They had their bell ringers and their field notes. And then they broke into their groups and they could work on anything that they wanted because they had all of these assignments that I had given them that some of them did or didn't do. And in addition to all of those assignments, they were all working on action research projects, which are mammoth projects that were driven by essential questions. I always gave them, they always had a ton of work to do. And because they're, you know, 15, they don't do anything. So they always had stuff that they had to do. And they could do them on their own. They could do them in groups. They usually involve an art form of, you know, of drawing and or a podcast or like anything that they wanted to do. One of the modules that there was requirements of this class is they had to do an apprenticeship someplace, either at a radio station or a TV station or something in media, knowing full well that many of the students that I worked with did not have the resources, the family resources, capacity to do an internship anywhere. So I opened up a possible apprenticeship internship inside the school that they could do with the elementary school. So they were working on all of these things. So those are some of the assignments. So for that one where we were talking about what is the context, just to try to raise the awareness of what does it mean to really understand the landscape, the context, and the history of media, one of the pieces of evidence they would have is their media timeline. And then they would take a picture of it, and they'd upload it and put it in their portfolio, and then they would add a caption about what they learned about the fact that, you know, I mean, not everything was invented all at once. Facebook has not always been around, you know. I mean, they know this, but they don't. And then a lot, they really they love that kind of stuff. 
And then I, I taught them how to do annotated bibliographies, and they did that for their action research projects. And then I taught them how to do a four-paragraph literature review because that would be inserted into their final project, which is their action research project. And then I had a unit on ethical thought, behavior, disposition, and action. And that's where we studied fake news. And this assignment, Tonio, was a fun one. You'd like this one. Because I told them to always, because media with intention, whether, or I think it's with intention, but maybe not completely, subconsciously or with intention, polarizes society. It gives you two choices. The kids constantly wanted to do what was pro and what was the con, because that's what they're taught. Make a list, the pros and cons. And I said, there's always a third way. There's always the Venn. And they knew what a Venn diagram was. So I said, create a Venn diagram, and I want you to pick a controversial subject of your choice, and then do a web search, and then identify sources that are aligned with one side of your Venn diagram, and then identify sources that support the other side of your Venn diagram. And then your harder assignment, because they don't really exist very often, find a site that supports the middle ground, or whatever you want to call that third way, the third space, I call it, the third space, which is where you live in paradox. You live in contradiction. You actually don't say one is better than the other. And I love that assignment, because we don't teach students that. And my colleagues reinforce the opposite of what I'm... Because I told them they could use any assignment from any one of their classes. They could upload it. If they're doing a report on Columbus, they want to use that as uh, evidence in their English portfolio. And that was another thing that blew their minds. We can use assignments from other classes? I said, yeah, why not? I said, you can even use assignments that you did last year in English. (laughs) Because, first of all, I would never know. And second of all, it's yours. Just don't use somebody else's assignment. That's all I'm asking. Don't plagiarize. So they did it. Some of them did some amazing Venn diagrams on things that they assumed were just flat-out polarizing, either black or white, as they would say, or good or bad. Give an example of one that, that someone did. This group of young women who happened to also be exemplary students, and not just good students, they were also really good critical thinkers. So they, of course, are the kind of, they're like dream students to some extent, although I, I, I'm always fine with the kids who are the bad boys and girls. I like, I like all of them. But this group, because they were traditionally good students, they struggle over stuff like this, but they don't rebel against it. They actually see it as a challenge to their minds, so they're so easy to work with because they're, you know, they have those social skills. Because they really did think, it was so interesting, the things they said back to me. It's like, how do you find out what's true? Well, then you find out the website that has the facts. (laughs) I said, all websites say they have the facts. That's the point. (laughs) You can find websites that say it's absolutely true, climate change is not happening, and here's the facts. And then you'll find another website that says climate, you know, you know. So this isn't about the facts, because facts are manipulated. So they chose the subject of, I forget what you call it, but we were looking at what happens like when you bring dolphins into captivity. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know what it is. Mm-hmm. It's those, like, water parks. You yeah. know what I'm talking about? I I'm not, I'm actually, talking about. I've actually been... I mean, I learned a ton, because I never really thought about this before. So they started researching it. Is it inhumane? Because some of them are saying it's really humane, because this particular dolphin was going to die, and now it's in a, you know, whatever. But then they're making it jump through hoops. So they're doing all this research about it. And then they got to the middle ground, and that's where they got confused. Like, what do we do here? I said, well... Here's another way of thinking about it. Pretend that you were hired to create one of these water, you know, places. 
knowing what you know, because you've researched the parts that say it's great and the parts that's terrible. Like, what would you do? And that helped them. So it was a great conversation because I had to think, too. <laughs> like I had to go, okay, now what do you... And then I realized, okay, the third space is the space of invention. It's the space of imagination. It's the space we don't go very often as society because media, the media we've created intentionally is devices. You're either pro-choice, right? And those are not constructs that I want students to continue perpetuating. So they did. They were uncomfortable with it because you're either this or you're that. You're either pro-vaccination or anti-vaccination because that's what my colleagues are teaching them. So the social studies teacher, who's a really nice guy and he's really young, and he thinks he's doing all kinds of project-based stuff, and I don't want to sound like, you know, we're just different. So he would give them assignments because he would tell me, well, I'm having them do this really great paper on critical thought because they're choosing all these explorers and they have to say on a scale from 1 to 10, how bad are they? How much of a villain are they on a scale from 1 to 10? And I'm like, (laughs) I can't even go down. First of all, (laughs) what? Anyway, I can't, can't, it's not even, so, so they're studying Christopher Columbus and then they're writing these reports based on all the sources that they... I mean, they do a nice job of scaffolding for kids who don't know how to research. Like, here's the websites where you go, and this is where you have to say on a scale 1 to 10, Christopher Columbus is a 9, because I think that he was a da-da-da. I mean, it's like, I don't even want them having that It's like, can we back up here just a little bit and put this, like, in context? Like, what is it that you really want the students... Do you know what I mean, Tony? Like, I, I know I exactly. Know what like, we, in college, I, I took debate and persuasion, and this is a classic example of what they do in schools and education. They have you argue one side of the issue. Fortunately, in debate yeah. and persuasion, they usually switch you so that you have to argue the other side as well, but they never explore the middle space like you're talking about. Yeah. It's everything implied. that I did was middle space. And I admit, I say, yeah, I'm biased. I'm biased because I want you to think deeply about something, and middle spaces ask you to do that. I told them I would be honest with them, is that I have to do this myself. And then I explained what killing the Buddha meant. (laughs) And they had the article by Pema Chodron. I said, you know, this is kind of what I'm talking about, and I have to do the same thing. Like, I have to kill my own Buddha. You know, like, I didn't talk a lot about my political views. I mean, the kids could probably figure it out, but I didn't rant about anything. So you don't have to change your mind. You can still end the day with your Make America Great Again hat. You know, and I know I had plenty of those students in the class. You know, they figured me out, and they figured I was a liberal, and they wouldn't talk, and they were pissed. And then I had a great relationship with one student who was like 16 going on, a 35-year-old graduate student who should just get his doctorate now. He's reading Plato, and like, he's really crazy smart. Also kind and just, just a wonderful Owen. I just love Owen. So when we went into COVID school, this happened to one other student, too, Will, but Will and I had already talked this through because he's very conservative. So Owen started wearing his Make America Great Again hat in Zoom meetings. So we had a private meeting once about something else, and I said, Owen, I have to ask you, I've never seen you wear that hat at school. Were you concerned about wearing it at school? And he said, yeah, and we had a whole conversation about it. And I said, I'm really sad that you felt like you couldn't wear that hat. And, you know, I mean, because he probably knows that I think the worst of Donald, like, you know, because he's not stupid. He gets it. But I don't want those students to feel unsafe. I don't even want to change their mind. I want them to think deeply, and then they can do what they want. So, you know, it's an interesting process.
So part of it in the unit about ethical thought, behavior, and disposition, they really had to think about fake news. And we saw a bunch of TED Talks on citizen journalism. Luckily, the librarian at my school had an ex-boyfriend who went on to become a Bloomberg news guy in D.C., and he came and did a presentation. It was really cool. So they had to think about that. We looked at, you know, how do you figure out whether sources are reliable? You know, and then they moved on to story. This is this is right from the curriculum I wrote for Goddard. Story catching, what it meant to tell your story, what it meant to be a journalist, you know, what it meant to catch other people's stories. And then I had a whole unit on practicing this work, and that was the apprenticeship internship unit where they had to go out in the world and practice it. And then I had a whole unit called production where they put things together, where they had to go in and do the editing. You know, they had to go in and create their digital stories and learn how to use, you know, the the software and stuff like that. And then they had to do their action research, which was an entire unit. And they worked on it from August all the way through the end of the year. And then they constructed their portfolio in terms of quality. They spell-checked it and made sure that there was quality graphics and it was organized and had a table of contents. And they constructed that, and then we ended the year in something that surprised me, something that I didn't think was going to be interesting turned out to be really interesting. So I had them read, but I didn't want to assign a book, but I thought I should assign one book. So I assigned one book, Parable of the Sower, by Octavia Butler. And it was, of course, a remarkable dystopian (laughs) apocalyptic book where everything in the book turned out to be true in our COVID state. So some of the kids read it, but most of them didn't. So when we went into COVID school, I said, look, I'm going to forego that assignment, and all we're going to do on Zoom the last two weeks of school in our final unit is we're going to have our own book studies, our own book clubs, and everybody's going to present the book they're reading, and I'm going to keep a table, and then I'm going to publish the table of everything that every student is reading and publish it so people have summer reading lists. And that's what we did. And it was it was really beautiful. I didn't the kids would tell me and I, I learned so much about what they're reading. So I did adapt to the fact that we were going remote, but not much because they still built their portfolio. So the end of this story or the final chapter is so the students all did finally understand what I wanted them to do with their e portfolios. They understood that by asking them to delete everything, I was asking them to just reimagine 10th grade English on their own terms, in their own way. And then they would ask me, should I take every unit and create a separate page in my portfolio on that? I said, that's one really well-organized way to do it. Or what if you do nothing and do one big project? And some of them did that. One young woman wrote like a 70-page journal on being quarantined. And that was it. That was her entire portfolio. And then she explained the ways it met all the criteria. Somebody else did photos. Somebody else did artwork. You know, others were more linear, and there were kids that said, I liked my bell ringers. So they kept their bell ringers and their field notes and their pictures of their timelines, and they kept their PowerPoints that they created for their inquiry. And I said, you're going to take this portfolio, and you're going to show it to your 11th grade English teacher who asked me to meet with him and go over everybody and let him know all about you before he got you. And I said, no, I'm going to have them introduce themselves to you through their portfolios. So I said, create something that you want somebody to see and know you as you want to be known. So that was 10th grade English in COVID school. (laughs) I'm so impressed. I'm 
Yeah, that's that's so wonderful. I was very fortunate to have some really good teachers in high school, but uh, I also mostly had the usual, you know, inside the kitty litter box teachers as well. <laughs> you know, what you're doing with these kids is great because I think most adults still don't know how to really work skillfully with responsibility. Yeah, I agree, and I work with those adults, and some of them are school principals, and so they do the same thing. So I had a great year of playing with this curriculum. I mean, it's not new for me, but, you know, every time I teach, it's new. I try something different. So I moved most of it over into my new class, which is a senior project class. And so the seniors will, they don't know this yet, but they're going to be doing much of the, not, I mean, it's not going to be based on this media thing, but I've recreated a portfolio based on their action research projects. And I had a lot written on that already because I teach that in other parts of my life with the school principal program that I run. And so I had all this content that I just cut and paste, moved over about the steps of doing action research from problem posing, you know, to essential questions, to how you gather data and what, and then what the methodology, the qualitative methodologies of portraiture and phenomenology and, you know, what those are. And it's going to blow the, the first group that I'm going to have next year once they get past they're being angry that they're no longer going to get away with a seven-page paper and they have to write a 26-page paper that I'm going to help them write that actually will be a scholarly piece that is driven with their own deep inquiry about themselves. Once they get through that, like the first month, they'll probably be really excited and happy about it. So we're going to do that together. The year after that, I will get my 10th graders back. The same group that I had will have me again. And they will then be a little older and a little wiser, and they already did this whole thing. So this is going to be a piece of cake for them. And then by then, if I'm doing my job and, like I usually say, I'm not hit by a bus, then the school will be hopefully starting to shift and ask the students to think more critically and not write papers or just because the other teachers I know, one of them said, I'm prepared. You know, I saw her curriculum, and she says, I use this to prepare them to do senior projects. And I was honest with her, and I said, well, it's not going to work anymore because you are teaching them to write reports, and an action research project is not a report. And the look on their faces is like, then what is it? Like, these are the adults. I said, I don't need them to write a report. I can look that stuff up myself. This is an action research project. It's an inquiry, like each one of us as faculty are required to do to teach at this university lab school. It's the same thing. They're doing the same thing. They really have to think deeply, ask questions, gather data, interviews, observe, be a witness to things, write narratives, think outside the box, you know, create something. Mm -hmm. So I love this. I mean, I'm very passionate about this, so I am not surprised. That, I mean, they knew that, so I'm just happy to get the job. So I'm really looking forward to teaching next year. My job, I, I don't want to use the word easier, but it will, be, it will be easier, like just in terms of time and planning and just overwhelm. I'm doing something that I've done, all, you know, that I can really sink deeply into it and not feel so scattered with some of the periphery stuff that isn't really, you know, that I just have to do because they were 10th graders. And like, oh. I love that you're doing this because yeah. when I was thinking of, you know, education and, and teaching. This is exactly what I was thinking of and dreaming of happen in classrooms. But I just knew that there just wasn't an environment out there that would allow me to do it, that I would be able to do that. So I, you know, went into despair and said, fuck it, I'm not going down that road because it'll be an act yeah. of suicide, creative suicide. Yeah, 
I only way I have been able to remain is because I've done lots of other like I just I navigated. And because of that, the downside is, you know, there's no pension. But the upside is it's been self-determined. And so I either do it and got in trouble or did it and found, like, I, you know, this has been years. I was doing this. Te- in 1987, after I'd been teaching for almost 10 years, I had a principal who supported me. And, of course, I was in the alternative program where it was easier to get away with stuff like that. So she super supported me doing this kind of stuff. And I found her and I contacted her when I got this job because I needed her to write a letter to verify that I had taught in Denver Public Schools because it was so long ago they no longer had a record of me teaching there. So she did. And she remembered me and she remembered my teaching. I mean, this is my principal in 1987. You know, and that's probably one of the reasons I became a principal, was I wanted to be a principal like her, that I could create spaces for teachers to do this work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you dabble in it enough and go in different directions, but it has a cost. You're right, Tony. I mean, the bureaucracy of it, the lie, the hypocrisy of it, the manipulation of it, which is what's happening now, which is why I need to, you know, especially like yesterday, I just, I was in my yoga bliss and then I listened to the news when Trump said, we're opening the schools. And then I went off on a pissy tangent and I, I need to figure out the best way to just stay, like the Dalai Lama says, just stay with a calm mind. Say, okay. <laughs> we have another challenge on our hands that's worse than high-stakes testing. We have leadership that wants to basically put our entire society at risk. Yeah, And then I also want to take my frustrations and put it towards a project that's going to help support the vision that I have for more decentralized school, which is what I'd like to see. And so real community-based school. So the opportunity is now, and I think they'll, you know, if I can figure out a way to support small efforts. And the irony is I'm going back to my roots, because I homeschooled my daughter, and I didn't want to do it alone, so I created this collective of people in the community, and we brought our children, and we did homeschool. And it made newspaper, and it was kind of cute. Those are the days when it was illegal to homeschool, so the only way I got away with it is by never enrolling her in school, so that she was under the, completely under the radar. Now, of course, you can homeschool. In fact, Florida, you have an option of homeschooling. You just check a box. But the idea of a collective, I've always been drawn to. You know, you just, communities, and whether you have five kids or ten kids or 15, or maybe a collective has, you know, 50. And not because I want to bankrupt public schools, because I believe in public schools. But if right now, if the schools are not behaving themselves, which is what's happening, and I know what my administrators are saying. Well, we have to do this because we're part of the University of Florida. You know, and Trump is do- doing a very effective job of just cornering everything. Like, Harvard just went online. Now they can't go online anymore because they just said, your international students will have to go home if they're online as the bulk of their classwork. So now Harvard has to go back and rethink it and make it a hybrid. And all of the California schools, like, this is such manipulation and politics, and it has nothing to do with what's in the best interest. This is what happened with the high-stakes testing regime as I watched it materialize. From It became all about power and control, and then as people, educators, parents, started saying, you know what, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to take my student and make them sit for 17 million hours of testing. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to opt out. And the government figured that out and said, okay, you opt out, then we'll defund your school, we'll fire your principal. You know, really? That's what you do? And that's what they did. And it was very effective. It worked. Everybody became afraid. And then we started creating narratives. Well, standardized testing is really good. It tells you. (laughs) The college board, biggest farce of the universe, is really good. 
best thing that could have happened out of COVID was they canceled the ACT. You know, like, it's like, finally, we're doing what we should have been doing anyway. Like, we have to really start questioning the stories we made up, which we were forced to do because they were all political. Cronyism. I mean, it was just, you know, it's happening again. I'm gonna, I know I'm going to have a meeting in a couple of weeks with our administrators, and they're going to say, we have no choice. We have to do this. We have to open up the campus. So I think what's going to happen is there's going to be three choices. I've seen some of the plans. They're going to say you as a parent can choose. You can send your child to school, do face-to-face. You can have complete remote where your teacher is your teacher at the school or whoever's available at the school. Or you can take a leave of absence from the school and enroll in Florida virtual school, which Florida has, a, you know, most states do. So they just enroll for a year and they just do everything online. So it's not a bad plan, but it could be better if we weren't told, like the airport waiting room, little tiny increments, like we don't really know what we're doing, but we will know by Thursday. Oh, just kidding. We have to count how many people died this week, so we'll tell you what we're doing by next Wednesday. We need more data. Then we'll tell. It's like, why didn't you just make a decision like three months ago? Look, next year is going to be kind of screwed up. Let's just take a year and be really thoughtful about this. But I'm clear that I am not going back to school. So if I worked for a school that would make me teach face-to-face, I would say I will not. And I don't think you want to fire me because I'm 65, and I know I can prove that I have some kind of underlying medical condition. So that means you'd be firing me because I'm refusing to put myself at risk. So they won't do that. So that's what's going to start happening as these schools start reopening, is that cafeteria workers and bus drivers and librarians and teachers are going to say, I won't go. They're going to have to get together to support each other to do that. Otherwise, a lot of people are going to feel totally disempowered and cowed into, into doing that. Fairfax District, that's exactly what they did. The Federation of Teachers, you can, you can find the story online, and they have a Facebook page. I think it's Fairfax Education Association. Kimberly Adams was interviewed. She was the most intelligent-sounding person I have heard in months. She was spot on, said exactly what was going on, including why weren't we working three months on this? You know, we could, we could have a plan instead of constantly being in emergency mode. And there's no way that this is healthy for anybody. I mean, I read the list of things, you know, if they find a sick kid, there's a room where they're going to put the sick kid. I'm thinking, well, who's going to be watching that sick kid? I feel so relieved that that's such a good strategy to keep me safe. Like, what are you talking about? This is a school, not a hospital. Like, what planet are these people on? So they all did get together and say, we're not going. What are you going to do about it? They're great. So that's what's going to have to happen. And then we have to come up with alternatives. And that's why I like the idea of what I want to do next is figuring out how and get my son to help me because he works with an organization that does exactly the same thing except with culture and music. He works for Artery. That's what they do. They match people who want to host an event in their house to somebody who's performing to someone who just wants to attend. And it's an entire cultural self-organizing amazing organization and of course they're all online now until they can do more face-to-face stuff maybe in the end of the year so he said yeah you can set up a site and so that's my new project so i can funnel my frustrations into something that feels productive this has been a really wonderful conversation this has been great tony i appreciate it thank you so much all right bye Bye bye-bye 
And that was Carla Haas Moskowitz. She's a longtime educator, teacher, principal, Goddard professor, and former co-host of Ethereal, The Possibilities of a Floating Particle of Dust, which aired on WGDR and WGDH for three years. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.